Hello, welcome to my podcast. Paper Sun, Chinese American citizen, and this is episode three. Last time, we learned about the first Chinese immigrants to America. We saw how the 1849 gold rush and the later labor needs for the building of the Intercontinental Railroad brought the first substantial numbers of Chinese to the United States. After the American Civil War, Congress in 1866, proposed for ratification by the states three Reconstruction Amendments to the United States Constitution. Of the three, the pertinent one for our discussion is the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment became law in 1868. Now, the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution is many things. I want, however, to focus on just the first sentence of Section 1 of the Amendment. It reads, quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside, end of quote. That sentence becomes important later in this discussion. The Chinese six companies became an important organization early in the Chinese immigration and acclimation struggle. Its roots may have gone back to 1850. Its earlier iteration may have been the Kong Chao Association. The Chinese Six Companies was basically a self-appointed ruling organization for Chinatown in San Francisco. It exhibited supreme powers to settle disputes in Chinatown. More importantly, it protected its dues-paying members and guarded the welfare of the Chinese community. The organization later became the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association of America. Before there was a Chinese government consulate office in San Francisco, the Chinese Six Companies was the unofficial representative and voice for the Qing government. By 1870, it had become the primary agent, attorney, 
and commissary for the Chinese community in San Francisco. Indeed, much of the legal challenges the Chinese community launched in the latter quarter of the 19th century were funded and driven by the Chinese six companies. The organization existed because of need. The American government did not protect the Chinese interests and in some cases suppressed it. From the moment Chinese immigrants arrived at San Francisco, it was there to assist them. A little bit of a postscript to the Intercontinental Railroad discussion from the last episode. Soon after the two railroads were joined at Promontory Point, Utah, the United States entered into a severe economic downturn. That, combined with the end of the gold rush and the end of the American Civil War, was a perfect storm for challenging, to say the least, economic times. Thousands of civilians headed west, as well as former Civil War soldiers, all using the new railroad. They flooded to the west, looking for work and opportunities. They found Chinese there already doing much of the labor. By the early 1870s, there were more laborers than jobs. It is not difficult to see where this was heading. Following the Civil War, America was facing unprecedented issues and attempting the best way to navigate those issues. For example, the freed former slaves, Indian displacement, reconstruction were some of the larger national discussions and issues occurring. Add to these the Chinese question. The Chinese question, however, was relatively new. It was uncharted waters, so to speak. Some people were not sure that the Chinese were a problem. Clearly, however, there was a growing cacophony that the Chinese immigrant invasion was a problem. Certainly, these same opinions held that the Chinese were a threat to a free, white, West America. That led to wild assertions. Because the Chinese regularly saved money they had earned and sent it back to China, it was believed they would drain America of dollars. Some physicians at that time claimed the Chinese brought with them strange, incurable diseases. That, they further claimed, was a threat to United States public health. In 1875, the American Medical Association supported a study that tried to measure the role of Chinese prostitutes in spreading syphilis in America. Invariably, Violence against Chinese escalated and became a regular occurrence. The United States, I should say the Western states, 
passed more and more laws aimed at the Chinese and Chinese immigrants. Most, of course, these laws would run afoul of the federal constitution. The courts were becoming more involved in the new laws against the Chinese. Still, there was increased clamor for a national response to the Chinese problem. In 1876, the Chinese six companies issued a manifesto warning Chinese in China not to come to America. Some of you that have listened to me from the beginning of the Chinese immigration discussion will recall the two different viewpoints that were present during the middle third of the 19th century. These, or those, opposing viewpoints shaped the political response. Perhaps no person at that time personified the dichotomous perspective than William H. Seward. Mr. Seward was an anti-slavery Whig, former governor and U.S. Senator of New York and presidential candidate in 1860. He was appointed by President Lincoln in 1861 as his Secretary of State and later was reappointed to that same position by President Andrew Johnson. Seward served in the capacity of Secretary of State until the year 1869. William Seward was the typical cosmopolitan expansionist of his time. The so-called cosmopolitans held the belief that America was the conduit between the modern world and the ancient East. The cosmopolitans, which included the East Coast elite of the United States, believed that free, unrestricted, unrestricted Chinese migration would increase the wealth, influence, and strength of the West and the country. A rising sea, perhaps, rises all ships. That open trade with China would expand Western markets and wealth and bring Western culture and religion to the Chinese. Have no illusions, however, that these elites were in it for the benefit of the Chinese. The cosmopolitans held many of the same racial beliefs as the white working class. The elites despised the Chinese for the same reasons. They were, however, willing to live with their prejudices and, ex- and exploit the Asians. At that same time, Chinese were still willing to come to America. As the American West expanded in the mid-19th century, a new treaty with China was desired. The Tientsin Treaty in 1858 was the last treaty with China up to that moment. Rather than follow Britain's path, of unequal treaties, Seward wanted a more cooperative stance with China. In an unusual decision, the Qing government appointed William Seward's friend, Anson Burlingame, to represent China's interests in the treaty negotiations with the United States. 
A chief goal of the new treaty would be respect for territorial sovereignty of both nations. And they had, and they had equal access to their markets. The Chinese government saw in Mr. Mr. Burlingame a reliable agent in navigating the intricacies of international comity and diplomacy. In 1868, both nations agreed to the Burlingame Treaty, subject to the ratification by the United States Senate. In exchange for most favored nation status for trade, the treaty recognized the inherent and inalienable right of people to freely migrate, change their place of residence and allegiance for purposes of curiosity, trade, or permanent home. Basically, the treaty permitted almost unlimited and unrestricted immigration. The treaty, the Burlingame Treaty, would be the last agreement with China that encouraged immigration. The cosmopolitan elite hoped the treaty's new approach would open China to American influence, expand American missionary efforts in China, and westernize China. The United States Senate unanimously ratified Seward's treaty. Just seven years later, however, and probably in violation of the Burlingame Treaty's open immigration promises, the United States passed the Page Act. The anti-Chinese hysteria finally got results from the, United, from the United States Congress. The Page Act became law in 1875. On paper, it prohibited the recruitment of involuntary laborers from China, Japan, or any Far East Asian country, and brought and brought to America for lewd and immoral purposes. Essentially, it barred entry into the United States of those deemed undesirable. The undesirables essentially were contract workers and prostitutes. The local councils at each American seaport had the duty and power to enforce the law. Asian prostitutes, particularly Chinese, were alleged to carry and spread a more virulent and potent venereal disease. Less obvious was the old bugaboo of marriage between Asian women and white men. Many states then already had laws on their books prohibiting those types of marriages. European immigrants, incidentally, did not have the same barriers. The Page Act, although, did not really have much impact on Asian contract workers. But it did reduce the entry into the United States of Chinese women. They simply declined to come to America. Asian women attempted to enter America were subject to invasive and humiliating inter interrogations and physical and medical exams. Not surprisingly, the law caused a skew in the male-to-female ratio. In 1870, 
there were roughly 78 Chinese females to every 1,000 Chinese males in America. After the Page Act, that number dropped to 48 to 1,000. By the start of the last quarter of the 19th century, America's manifest destiny to conquer and tame the West was in full bloom. The veritable Eden many white Americans believed was the American West, particularly California, was in danger of being ruined by American Indians, black Americans, and Chinese. American society at that time seemed more willing to try to assimilate black Americans and American Indians, but not so much with the Chinese. Exclusion was increasingly becoming the remedy to the Chinese problem. White American society feared Native Americans and Black Americans would contaminate the West, but they feared that the Chinese would conquer the West. Viewed that way, Chinese immigration was seen as an invasion. Exclusion seemed the only way. To further rationalize the argument that Chinese exclusion was necessary, there were many justifications that were offered. One was the assimilation argument. Chinese, it was argued, would never be loyal to America. Their ancient culture was immalleable. The anti-Chinese advocates included the Chinese strange physical appearance and gender ambiguity in their dress. It followed that Chinese were an inferior race and nationality, that they were heathens and they were cunning and servile. All these pejorative adjectives and concepts were prevalent. That Chinese constituted a threat and needed to be treated differently than other immigrants was another argument. In the 1870s, there were more instances of violence against Chinese and their safety could not be certain. It seemed a federal and major comprehensive plan was needed. By the late 1870s, starting with some trade unions, the outcry came to a full pitch. The Chinese had to go. Efforts to tax the Chinese to death did not work. The courts began to overturn the tax and license laws of the various states that passed them. As it goes, the 1876 federal election was contested and very close. Both political parties began to seek support of as many voters as possible. Both parties tried to appeal to the growing and loud anti-Chinese voters. Thank you for listening.